Welcome to the Auditorium Podcast, a portal into the fringes of culture. Series three, Dave. I sure am. Yeah, me Whoa. too. Done loads of preparation. Whoa! What's happened here? Check out the studio. It's gone completely. It's actually rather lovely, isn't it? It is rather lovely. Look how they've got flowers. Is that an original Picasso? I don't think so, but it's a good print. It is a good. Got... And look down here. I've got a foot spa underneath my uh, underneath my chair. Beautiful. Well, foot spa. Well, you you have needed one of those. I'll be it honest. It smells a lovely smell of jasmine. In there, there is, there, isn't, isn't there? there? Oh, hang on. There's, so, a, there's a note here from from oh, Andrew. Yes, from Andrew saying. Dear boys, I have rearranged the studio for Series 3 in accordance with the rules of Feng Shui as written down by Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. So that's nice. It's all changed. Ever since Lance uh, ended up in prison for... Well, we won't uh, say We won't go into that, but um, it's it's been... I don't know, it's been a delight. It really has, actually. It's been been nothing but fun with with It's weird sitting in this corner of the studio, though, isn't it? Because the the table's moved over and... um, I'm in a different seat here. Yeah, no, I've not been in this this part of it. It's such a big studio as well that to to be over in this corner... It's, um, wow! Yeah, yeah. this it's feels different. really odd to be sat here. I have to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, you know, we'll get used to it. It's nice. So, um, Ooh, anyway, I'm so... getting a bit of a. What's up? Oh, whoa! Up? What? Well, I'm getting my guts just going crazy. Well, I know I can hear. I mean, what have you been eating? Hi. Well, I just had my normal for breakfast. It was just, you know, a couple of pot noodles and a biscuit. Hi. Whoa! Oh, I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm getting off. The... Come on, come on, come over here. Let's have a listen. It stopped. It stopped now. It has stopped. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit back must down. Have she must have cleared. Go and, go and sit down. Yeah. Oh, that was kind of weird, wasn't it? It's back again. Oh! <laughs> what? I've got... Is that a voice? Dave, I've got... There's someone... Is there someone talking from inside your arsehole? Yes! Again. Let's have a listen. Oh, hello, everybody. It's me, Alistair Crowley. I've been dead for ages, but now I'm back, thanks to your bumhole. Hey! Dave, it, it seems that you've got the disembodied voice of Alistair Crowley emanating from your bottom. I hate to say that that's true, but that would appear to be true. How could that be possible? I don't know. Why would Alistair Crowley even be here? Well, well, he was actually he was he was cremated in Brighton. In fact, he was cremated a short distance away from here in Woodvale Cemetery. And this building is built on an ancient Indian burial ground, isn't it? It is, and no one ever knew what happened to his his ashes. They were buried here, right here, underneath your seat, in the ancient Indian burial ground. So I'm able to pop up and right up your arsehole. Hee-hee! I will be appearing for six weeks in summer season in Blackpool. Thanks very much. Uh, Dave, I hate to say it, but it's going to really ruin the podcast series if you're going to have Alistair Crowley speaking out of your arsehole for, for the rest of them. <laughs> well, Dave, what can I do? I mean, I guess I can move the seat, but everything's, like, strapped down. Well, you need a bit of advice, don't you? I do. Maybe the guest speaker for this episode could actually help you. That is literally only the 30th time that's happened in that series. Well, that's a good point. But anyway, we've got Daisy Campbell, the return of Daisy Campbell. And she's giving a talk about the ancient art of gastromancy. This might help. Here she is, Daisy Campbell. Daisy Campbell, everybody! Shut him up. 
The voice had spoken, reminding me of the place to which horse lover Fat had gone in his search. As we had been told long ago to do, I kept my commission. That, ladies and gentlemen, that is the... Um, the last line of Philip K. Dick's book, Vallis. Vallis stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. And it is the opening line of my father, Ken Campbell's uh, one-man show, The Recollections of a Furtive Nudist. Horse Love of Fat was Philip K. Dick's kind of alter ego. And the way he'd come about this name, he thought, right, Philip means lover of the equestrian arts, so there's horse lover, Dick is the German for fat, horse lover fat, you see, and that was his alter ego. My dad thought this was brilliant, and he thought, I'll come up with mine. Kenneth, it turns out, is Celtic for the handsome one, so pretty boy. He couldn't find the etymology for Campbell, so he split camp and bell and ended up with pretty boy tent ringer. Yes, before I get into all those tales, I want to tell you this. We kept our commission, and our commission was to pull the cosmic trigger. Now, I'm guessing there's some of you here may not know what a cosmic trigger is. That's all right, I'll catch up the stragglers. Cosmic trigger is a book. It is the non-fiction autobiographical account of Robert Anton Wilson, counterculture hero. If you don't know who Robert Anton Wilson is, you ought. And, um, and it's his tale of his journey while he was writing his magnum opus, Illuminatus. Now all this talk about the Illuminati, you hear the kids all on about and the rest of it, and Beyonce and all that. It all kind of started with Robert Anton Wilson and this book, Illuminatus, right? And so Cosmic Trigger is about what happened to him while he was writing that. He got into the teachings of Alistair Crowley. He dropped a hell of a lot of acid. He, he cooked up ideas for space migration and uh, and... Uh, immortality with his pal Timothy Leary. He helped found the Church of Discordia, which worships Eris, the Greek goddess of chaos, confusion, and international relations. I was led to adapt this book for the stage. And it turned out, I only discovered once I was well underway, that I was in fact the exact same age that my father had been when he had adapted Illuminatus for the stage. And not only that, I discovered that I had in fact been conceived during that legendary production. Anyway, listen, we did it. We kept our commission. And we didn't just stage the whole five-hour epic with a cast of 23. Listen, at some point, Alan Moore said, yeah, all right, I'll be the holographic um, image and voice of fuck up the world's most intelligent computer. And then sort of unbidden, all these props and posters turned up from Jimmy Corti, one half of the KLF. I mean, the whole thing really was extraordinary. We'd stumbled upon a, a true mystery thread. We, it, it, it mushroomed at one point into um, an entire three-day festival up in Liverpool, uh, all about the ideas of Robert Anton Wilson, Tim Leary, John Lilly, Ken Campbell, all these counterculture heroes. And we did it on November 23rd, which is the ultimate Discordian holy day. We did it in Liverpool because the original Illuminatus production had been done there. In fact, the original had been located on the site of Carl Jung's most important dream, which he wrote about on page 223 of his book, Memories, Dreams and Reflections. Chapel Perilous, in our case. Um, she would descend through the gates of Chapel Perilous, and as she went, she would strip off each item of her clothing with Alan Moore's voice leading the whole thing through. And, and it ought to be a different woman and a non-performer every single time we did it to really sort of maximise the magic of the whole thing. And I'd mentioned this to Alan Moore, and he said, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but then, look, after all this wonderful, magical thing, 
um, the question came, what do we do next? If I'm totally honest, I'd really slumped. I had this sort of awful fungal toe and hippie mates were saying, oh yeah, that's because you've got toxins in your gut. And Anyway, I went along to this nutritionist who said, yes, yes, you've got mycotoxins and this is a kind of fungi that actually has a really very important job to do. Its job is to eat your corpse after you're dead, <laughs> right? And, uh, but so sort of exhausted and kind of diminished was I that I couldn't get to grips with anything, not even trying to vanquish the fungi that was prematurely eating my corpse. And um, anyway, my gorgeous friend Kate, she said to me, look, what you ought to do is you ought to go on this thing called big mind meditation. She just got back from doing this thing, right? And um, have you heard of it? It's really good. It's actually this technique developed by this guy called Genpo Roshi. He's a sort of, you know, a sort of American Zen monk. He's since been a bit disgraced, but I think the thing sounds nonetheless. And, um, and so what he does is he sort of uses the West's familiarity with psychological uh, matters to access these really high... Um, meditative Zen states, right? So what you have to do is you sort of have to talk to all these different voices that reside within you. And the idea is that if you've really given a chance for all these different voices to, to be heard and have their say, then you might not block yourself from being able to talk to your most cosmic self or even embody your most kind of cosmic self. He used to refer to himself as a collection of selves, Robert Anton Wilson. So he used to talk about himself as the mystic, the neurologician, the, the, the hack, the inquirer, the skeptic. Uh, amongst many others. And actually, this had come about from, a, from an Alistair Crowley experiment that he had undertaken where um, Crowley said the, the experiment was how long could you go without using the word I? And Crowley was very into negative reinforcement. So when, when he would slip and utter the word I, he'd slash himself with a razor. Um, Wilson thought it was a bit extreme, so he decided what he'd do is he'd just bite himself on the thumb very, very hard. And he said that after just two weeks of this exercise, he had an incredibly sore thumb. But from then on, he could never sort of, um, he could never see the concept of I as anything other than just a kind of convenient fiction. So instead, he took to referring to himself as this collection of selves, because he felt that at least that got a little bit closer to the truth. Actually, on the whole Robert Anton Wilson Crowley tip, Wilson once noted that people have this kind of horror reaction to Crowley's most famous maxim, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Whereas Wilson pointed out, you know, throughout history, the, all these gurus have popped up and said, do what they wilt shall be the whole of the law. And we've all, oh, right, okay. Um, you know, he, said he used to refer to a disciple as an asshole looking for a human being to attach itself to. So... I'm not going to this whole big mind thing to become any kind of disciple or anything, but I am intrigued. And so a few, good few months back now, actually, I, I find myself in Paris. It's a class of about 50 or so people. And the way it works is this. Genpo is kind of sat on a high stool. We're all sat below him, a bit like this. And he says um, he's going to ask to speak to all these different voices. Our job is to sort of not be smart asses, but just to be quite obvious. And we've got to talk from the first person, as he refers to each of these voices. Um, and if we need to refer to the entity normally known as Daisy, then we talk about the self. Um, so, so he starts off. Oh, first of all, he'd ask to speak to the controller, who it turns out, surprisingly enough, wants to control. Um, Partly its job is to keep out inquisitive Zen priests, I think. But anyway, 
So um, then he moves on to the sceptic, and that amused me because that was one of Wilson's favourites. So we all have to shift slightly in our chair, and then he says, Who am I? he's sort of got a soft American voice, who am I speaking to? And we have to say, the sceptic. And he says, and what is your job? To be sceptical. Yeah, and why is that? And we say something like, oh, so Daisy doesn't go about believing all this mumbo-jumbo she constantly seems to get caught up in. And he says, so you're kind of protecting the self. And we say, yeah. And he says, okay, so what do you think of this workshop? And we say, well, we're sceptical. Uh, and he says, well, you know, what else are you sceptical about? And people shout out various things that they're sceptical about. And then we sort of establish we're pretty much sceptical about everything. We're sceptical about everything, we say. And he says, so are you sceptical about scepticism itself? Oh, wow, yes, we say. And, then, and actually, this is really like a big theme of Cosmic Trigger, the idea that belief is the death of intelligence, that when dogma enters the mind, all intellectual activity ceases. And this, suddenly I remembered why my dad used to go on at me about belief. He used to say to me, now listen, Daisy, don't believe anything, right? Anything that is the product of a human mind is not a fitting subject for your belief. But you can suppose anything, right? Supposing is very good. It's very mind-widening, right? So you should suppose in God and you should suppose in flying saucers, suppose in life after death. I suppose you could suppose that one of the big religions had actually got it right, right down to the last nut and bolt. But listen, Daisy, don't believe it. Or as Robert Anton Wilson more succinctly puts it, Convictions cause convicts. Genpo's voice rings out and I'm back in Paris. I'd like to speak to the voice of the seeker. The seeker, that's what my dad used to call his audience. Hello, seekers. He used to say, who am I speaking to? The seeker. And what is your job? Um, it's to seek. Will you ever stop seeking? No, and that's what I was doing in Paris. I was trying to find the next commission, but you know, it's really hard to be on this incredible wave of synchronicity and magic and pro and everyone just coming out of the woodwork to help, and then suddenly the wave recedes again, and you're kind of left wondering what it all meant, what it was all about, you know? I, I was quite frankly lost, but then I got this phone call from Ishtar. She says, listen, Daisy, I don't know whether this is important or not, but I've had a kind of vision and I think um, I need to tell you about it. Now listen, on one level, this is my lovely new mate, Becky. But on the other hand, this is Ishtar. This is the woman who dared to strip naked in front of hundreds of people at the very opening of my play and descend through the gates of hell. I mean, symbolically at least, she has visited the underworld and now she's phoning to say that she's returning with a vision. I mean, this might be important, right? So this was the thing. She'd become kind of fascinated with the underworld since agreeing to play Ishtar. And lots of her research kept leading her to mycelium. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, mycelium are the kind of threads of the fungi that crisscross under the earth and form the mushrooms. She said, you know, we think of mushrooms as individual plants growing from the earth one at a time, but in reality, they are just the flowers of a much larger entity we can't see. She said, did you know mycelium predates any other vegetation by over 300 million years and forms the largest organism currently living on this planet? I reckon that under one square inch of soil, there are eight miles of mycelium. Furthermore, 
we're more closely related to these giants of the underworld than you might ima imagine. We, we share over half our DNA with fungi. Historically, culturally, biologically, we are incredibly close to the mushrooms. But the thing is, says Ishtar, what the vision was was this, that this Mother Earth that people refer to, it's not just the Earth in general. It has a much more specific and ancient meaning. The great mother of the underworld is the mycelium. And she says, Daisy, the mushrooms are not what they seem. They're sentient. Anyway, yeah, I kind of agreed. It was quite interesting, this stuff. I couldn't see quite how it helped with my commission. And then we talked a bit about a great big inflatable dome theatre. And we agreed, yeah, that could be a good idea. And I thought, yeah, mycelium, it is a good kind of metaphor for underground culture. You know, that the kind of, the culture would, above ground can only see a mushroom when it appears. They don't see all these network of people getting on with their stuff. No one appreciating it. No one seeing it. They just go, oh, look, there's a mushroom. Um... No, no, no mushroom, mycelium, friggin' hard-working, I can tell you. Anyway, um, so I, and, and it was weird, actually, because for a while after that phone call, every woman I spoke to seemed to have been dreaming of inflatable domes. And uh, I thought, maybe this is the next commission then. But then that lead sort of went cold, and, and uh, I, couldn't, I just couldn't get it together. I don't know why. Anyway, I'd muttered to a few people that perhaps what I ought to be doing is something with all my dad's work. I still hadn't really sorted out his archive properly since his death. And, uh, and they'd sort of looked concerned and said, yeah, perhaps it's best to kind of get on with your own thing, really. And I remembered, oh, yeah, that's right. I am supposed to be getting out of my dead father's arsehole. And then there was talk of other adaptations and this and that, but every lead kind of went cold. Then there was this man, this Mark Bennett, who you introduced me to, who filmed the whole extravaganza in 3D. And, uh, and he said to me, you know that synchronicity is nothing more than training wheels for the will. You know, once it goes, you're supposed to find your own magic. But I just didn't seem to be doing all that well without my training wheels. So I thought, look, sod it. I'll at least get all my dad's archive into a storage unit. I mean, there is a ton of this stuff. It's been gumming up our cupboards, our loft, under our beds, in every corner that you can imagine. We are talking hundreds, if not thousands, of notebooks, boxes upon boxes of weird letters, crumbling manuscripts, VHS cassette recordings, his shows, his TV stuff, weird props, costumes. I mean, it was time to at least get it all into one place. And I'd... I'd, um, what I'd done is I'd gone to Screwfix and just got a load of these. Amazing bargain, $9.99 for these sort of big old shelves. And I'd lined the whole thing at this um, storage unit uh, with these things. And they're really expensive, these storage units. So you've kind of got to stack everything incredibly high. And I'd got it all in and stacked up and shut the door. But it wasn't the day for sorting. And then suddenly, one day it was. And I felt almost like... Ariadne of the storage units as I kind of made my way through endless rows of people's unwanted crap. I thought, I'm going to find my mystery thread today. This is it. I'm going to find some amazing thing. And I got to the, uh, and I got to the unit and undid the padlock, 2323. 23, and um, and the f those screw fix shelves, right? They hadn't just fallen over. They'd kind of buckled into themselves across the doorway, forming this complete sort of blockage of the storage unit doorway. And I just thought, you know, this is what life is like at the moment, you know? Every doorway I'm supposed to walk through is blocked, you know? And I could see all my dad's sort of scrunched up scripts and all his lovely stuff, and I just got really, you know, just thought, synchronicity, just come back here and finish what you started. And then I remembered 
Mark Bennett's voice saying, synchronicity is nothing more than training wheels for the will. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm going to find my will. I'm going to get into this storage unit if it kills me. Anyway, I could see that sort of, so you've got to imagine that the shelves have literally formed like, almost like a cross. Like it was quite symbolic as they've buckled. And caught in that kind of apex of that cross, right in the middle there, is a cardboard box. And I thought, probably what I can do is carefully open that box, sort of shove through everything that's in the box. It was all so screwed up anyway. Um, and then I can make my way through that cardboard box and into his storage unit, right? So I opened up the, um, the, the, the covered thing. And inside, <laughs> inside it was his flesh-coloured fat suit. Um, kind of really moulding. It was like ancient thing and it was made out of f weird pink foam and the whole thing was kind of crumbling and mouldy and stinking and sweaty and all that. And I thought, yeah, there's only one thing for it. I tried to pull it out, but it was properly jammed into the, into the mash-up. And I thought, right, there's only one thing for it. I'm going in through the fat suit. And I got one foam in my mouth. It was fucking horrible. Oh, man. And arrived into this kind of pile of my, my dead father's work. And, um, and uh, yeah. Anyway, and Genpo Roshi's voice says, I'd like to speak to the vulnerable child. Who am I speaking to? The vulnerable child. Yeah. So just take a moment to feel what it's like to be you. And what does it feel like? I, I don't know. I feel kind of innocent and impressionable. Yeah. I, f I also feel quite inquisitive and playful. Yeah. Would you say that you are kind of the heart of the self? Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of the essence, aren't you? There's something very pure, isn't there, about you? And there I am in this collapsed storage unit, surrounded by a lifetime's work. There's no light in these things. There's just whatever light sort of comes through the dingy roof. And uh, first thing I find is this file labeled Daisy. And there's pictures of me as a little one and school reports and whatnot. And there's this GCSE geography project with the hypothesis on every ley line crossing point in London, there stands a public toilet. Which is true. It is true. Um, and then, anyway, then I come across one of his... <laughs> it is. And then I come across one of his more recent projects, History of Comedy, Part 1, Ventriloquism. And in it, right, in this notebook, he talks about how his recent athlete's foot of the arse may have made him walk funny and therefore opened up his gastromantical abilities. <laughs> and now I was really, I was on a mission now, searching around for anything that might tell me what gastromancy might be. And then I found it. Gastromancers sense out spirits rectally, <laughs> right? When they come in, they sweep the place around with their hindquarters, gastromantical thinking being that spirits dwell below, yeah? And then the gastromancer's objective is to hoover up the unquiet, which will then speak through the wall of the stomach. And, uh, and then I found this. This was the prize. It's an excerpt, circa 1860, attributed to Henry Mayhew. Here, an old gastromancer from Peckham reveals the secrets of his trade. The whole enterprise is your bumbo. These are your cakes. Between your cakes is the binky. In, in the binky is the touche or patootie, sometimes called the grumper. It is the grumper what does the dowsing. 
The tricksy bit of uploading this spirit demon or departed is done by backdoor trumpet inhale, shuff or cack pipe upsuction, not the easiest thing, and once you've got her in and it's bunched tight, the bamsy strings, keep, keep her moving right up the loon pipe, well clear of the labonza. Keep her sweet and by and by she'll talk. But keep her sweet mind, because a narky sprite will prompt a beef tea blowback. <laughs> the vulnerable child. And I know I'm supposed to be getting out of my father's arsehole, but the truth is I love it in here. And there's just so much incredible stuff. And I thought, do you know what? Do you know what? Telling me to sort of let go of all this stuff and do my own thing. I mean, do you know how I spent my childhood? I spent my childhood watching my dad performing these one-man one shows to, you know, what an audience to... Um, like, he was like an all-powerful preacher man holding forth to his small but very devout congregation about such matters as trepanning, gastromancy, teleportation, vis visitations, demonic and other sentient volcanoes, all manner of strange commissions. I mean, it went in deep. And uh, so asking me not to include this stuff is a bit like asking someone raised Catholic, could they please purge all their novels or paintings of, you know, religious iconography? And then imagine my utter amazement when Genpo Roshi says he'd like to speak to the next voice. He said, this one was a little controversial, but recent personal events have caused me to realize that its inclusion is very important. So, I'd like to speak to the voice of the asshole. Who am I speaking to? The asshole. What is your job? My job is to be a complete and utter asshole. And then I started to get a strange sensation in my bumbo. The grumpo was definitely picking something up. I could feel that an uploading was imminent. I mean, you're not supposed to stand up at these things, but it's as if something was kind of forcing me up off my chair. I tried to stay seated. I was trying to fight it. And Genpo, he saw my discomfort and he reassured me, there can be some very powerful energy trapped in there, can't there? And powerful energy. I mean, I knew what was coming. I'd read the gastromancer's instructions, the backdoor trumpet inhale. Oh, Christ, here it comes. And it was in and heading straight up the loom pipe. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Pretty Boy Tintringer. <laughs> where, where have you come from? I've come from below, from the mystery threads of the Great Mother. Your Ishtar, she nearly got there. She sussed that the network of mycelium is sentient. The mushrooms are not what they seem, but she didn't make that last leap. Come on, Daisy, think. Where do you think the consciousness of the dead resides? It's in the mycelium. It is the vast active living intelligence system that horse lover Fat was on about. And he's down here. And Rob Anton Wilson and Crowley and even that kid who killed himself after your David Bowie reading. We're all here. <laughs> the mystery threads are running right below your feet. And now you know how to suck them through into your world. The clues were there all along, Daisy, what with your fungal toe and your corpse-eating mycotoxins and my athlete's foot of the arse. <laughs> Genpo, Genpo says, looking rather shaken, and what is your role? I've come to give Daisy her commission. You've got to structure all your capers mycelically. You've got to look for the crossing points of the threads. You've got to get hold of the crisscross of the threads and pull the fuck thing down and pang yourself into the infinitude of absolute mind. And then, oh God, 
Oh no, it was a beef tea blowback. <laughs> and I shuffled away to go and get myself cleaned up. And, uh, and um, anyway, when I finally returned to the group, a little shame-faced, um, Genpo was saying, I'd like to speak to the voice of Big Mind. Who am I speaking to? Big Mind. And just how big are you? I mean, have you got any limits or boundaries? Can you actually find a beginning? No. What are some words that describe you? Fast, ungraspable, ineffable, eternal. Is big the right word for you? No, why not? It's not big enough. Infinite mind would be better. What about birth? Nope, there is no birth. So you're unborn. And what about death? There is no death. So I stand before you, Miss Tentringer, back from the underworld, with the help of all my extraordinary cosmic cohorts, some of whom are here today, and I owe them everything. And I say it's the Mycelium Mysteries next seekers. We've got to find out where those mystery threads are intersecting, is intersecting and maybe we'll erect an inflatable dome called the Mycelium. And in this glorious inflatable dome will be productions of the light you can't imagine that dig deep into our collective unconscious and snaffle out the truffles of wisdom that the sentient Mycelium Great Mother has grown for us. Will it work? The proof is in the caper. But if it does, it will be a temple of big mind, a safe place where we can all explore our arseholes and the ancestors which may reside in them. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Daisy Campbell there with a brilliant and illuminating talk on the art of gastromancy and her relationship with uh, with her father, Ken Campbell. Oh, yeah, that's better. You're, you're right. We've been. Oh, yeah, it just turns out I needed to, you know, needed to drop the kids off. Oh, well, Mr. Anything? Crowley's gone, is he? Yeah, I don't think it was any, ever, ever, any, anything other than that, yeah. Right, right, OK. Well, that's that's good to know. So we don't have to worry about that, really. But I'm feeling peckish. Yes, and what we need is something good for all... After all the trauma of Alistair visiting my guts, we need something that's... It's going to be gentle. Something that would be a medicinal biscuit. Yes. And what can be more medicinal than ginger? And what can be more gingery than a ginger nut, ladies and gentlemen? Which is what we've got here. We have got some ginger nuts. And I've got to say, it's a biscuit that I will buy for its medicinal properties when I'm travelling. Particularly if I'm travelling by boat, I will... I mean, sometimes I'll take ginger root with me. I took a rough ferry ride to the Isles of Scilly last year. And I mean, really, really rough. And I, so I took a load of ginger with me. So I had a big flask of ginger tea and I took ginger biscuits. And did it work? Uh, well, I wasn't sick. Guess, guess where they're the most popular biscuit? I don't know, New Zealand, somewhere like that. Oh, how dare you? You're right. Was yes, it? yes. Was it, it New Zealand? New, yeah, it's New Zealand, yeah. And it's, uh, and it's, uh, cause it's a, because it's tough texture means it, it's a good dunker and they're big dunkers over there. They have their own term for dunking, they call it a Tim Tam Slam. Can I get the old packet of ginger nuts, mate, and give them the Tim Tam Slim? Lovely. It's lovely, <laughs> well, do, mate. Do it with your um, What, with New the New Zealand, Zealand accent? accent. Yeah, yeah, I should do. Yeah, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but what the, 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 the key into dunking, the fact that they are such a cracking dunker biscuit, uh, leads us on to the, the physics of dunking, which we've never discussed before. We haven't. Uh, very important. It's something that's been, been worked on. It's due to capillary action. Uh, and and uh, it's been worked out. The ancient Romans were the ones who started dunking. 
uh, with hard unleavened wafers uh, way back in the day. Sweet or or savoury? They were, well, biscocum twice-baked biscuits. So I'm guessing they were were like a savoury biscuit dipped into wine. Uh, So it wouldn't have been a sweet, wouldn't have Mm. been a sweet biscuit. It's not much fun. Dunking in this country only started in the 19th century and spread via the empire. So wherever there's uh, empire, the Commonwealth countries basically dunk and other places don't. Or, or they have to be introduced subtly to dunking. You'd Dun think, dunking. yeah, exactly. You'd think India would be into dunking, but they're not. Strangely, because they have different types of tea and aren't massive on biscuits. So, uh, but it started with sailors and hardtack, those like incredibly hard seafaring biscuits. They would dunk those in whatever they could, basically, to make them more acceptable. Has anyone made a Hollywood movie about this? Wouldn't about that, dunking? Wouldn't that be brilliant? You're yeah, right. It's you very, know? it's very dramatic. Very dramatic. Maybe the competition, a competition to make the film. <laughs> Should we do that? Yes, okay. So this okay, so I mean we, we now we don't normally have an elitist attitude at the at the auditorium podcast. We no. we are we are egalitarian. We're only we, towards the proles. Well, that's that's right. Yeah. But we we're normally egalitarian yeah. with with our listeners and with our competitions. But for this one we're going to do something a little bit different, okay? So apologies this is a little bit elitist. Not everyone listening can participate in this, but this this competition is only for big Hollywood filmmakers. Okay, okay so that's this is fair. for the likes of Cameron and Soderbergh and whoever is yeah. listening. Um, Walt Stillman, I bet he'd make a great. Uh, he, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Spielberg. Um, See, his would be too emotional. His would be more three be layers more-ish. of chocolate. Yeah. yeah, forget. So Spielberg, sod off. Yeah. Um, well, he can if he wants, but I'm just saying we're probably we're probably a little bit prejudiced against you. Yes, exciting. Um, maybe yeah. So, but anyway, so the competition is to make a big, a lavish, big budget. Hollywood film about Duncan, yeah, and the best one, because we're hoping there'll be more than one, so yeah. we can choose. Gets to come on the podcast. Gets as a to guest. Come, gets, gets to come as, as a guest on the podcast and, and give the film a little plug. Yeah, through the podcast. The auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. Dave Mountfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Studio managers were Sam Walter and Hannah Schmidt. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. If you like the auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available through Amazon and all good bookshops. Disgraced former studio manager Lance Dan is currently serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure.